Several years ago, I interviewed Garrett Scott with a pen and a notebook in a quaint coffee shop near the university. It was a quiet July afternoon. The students had all traveled home for summer break. I intended at the time to create a Chess Life article out of our conversation. As I later told Garrett, I tried to write that article many times. If I had to guess, I'd say dozens. But every time, I failed. I could never quite get it right. It felt unsatisfying, incomplete, disingenuous. The problem I realized was that it was not my story to tell. It was Garrett's. Presenting the story in any other voice than his would simply not do. Fortunately, dear listeners, I was finally able to find the proper opportunity and medium to deliver Garrett's story, or stories, I should say. Garrett's experience, I think, is essentially American, unfiltered, and personal. It chronicles the passing of time in the life of a chess player and school teacher, yes. It also documents a period of strife in our history that echoes still today. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Garrett Scott. Okay, I'm Garrett Scott. I've lived in central Illinois all of my life, except for a brief two-year hiatus in Alabama. I have had experiences with chess and life uh, like anyone who's 75 years old. I am uh, professionally, I was a speech and language pathologist for the public schools in Bloomington, Illinois, Bloomington and Normal are Twin Cities. And if you wonder sort of where is it, well, it's... You draw a line from Chicago to St. Louis on a map, and we're halfway down that line. And this is, generally speaking, where I've lived all of my life. My experiences in Alabama, I might touch on those later because they were interesting experiences. But uh, we're talking chess, and chess began for me uh, when I was five years old, maybe four. For Christmas, my older brother received a chess set. He went to the encyclopedia, learned how the pieces moved, and he also was active in chess as uh, as an adult. Uh, but as a junior high player, he needed someone to practice. Little brother is a, is a good starting point. And little brother is a an excellent place. Of course, a little brother almost always will do anything. An older brother says, let's do this. And little brother joins in. It was, I don't know if I ever won a game from my brother. because he <laughs> To was, this day? No, no. Because he was about seven years older than me. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, well, I'll jump here to when we were both USCF players. Our parents, our whole family, really, would get upset with us at uh, any time the family gathered because we'd pull out a chess clock and be real asocial for anywhere up to four or five hours of, of speed chess because we were turned out to be comparable. He topped out in the uh, high 1700s and I topped out in the mid 1600s. So. It was uh, it was fun learning from him. It was a matter of finding opponents back in the 1950s when you were a child. And uh, so when you found an opponent, it was very nice to play. 
my first, I'm guessing, more than 100 games were with my brother. Total of, of any opponent, just, of any just playing opponent. him. Along about third grade, uh, I told a group of uh, uh, classmates, well, I play chess with my brother. And one of my classmates said, I play chess. I'm pretty good. I said, well, I'm not very good. I always lose. And so John said to me, let's play. (laughs) Sounds like a fun, sounds like a fun game. I can do that. Yeah. And uh, what was interesting to me is that all those losses, I kept learning to watch out for something. And so... I, over the course of a couple of years, I found about five or six chess players, and I was better than they were. And I'm not sure where it came from uh, that I learned that our basic uh, basic life in chess was e4, e5, queen to f3. <laughs> one of, I see what we're going for here. One, yeah. of, one of the knights out, bishop to uh, c4, and hope it works. And and play all sorts of variations off that position, and that's what we did. And uh, it was a learn good learning experience. But what I found out by the time I was in fifth and sixth grade was that you know I was a pretty good player. You know, it's interesting because right before we began our conversation, we were talking about technology, you know, yes, and all the ways it's changed. You know, here we are recording a podcast yes. about a board game yes, <laughs> and the ways technology influences our lives. And in terms of chess, you know, one of the biggest is how you learn. Yes. You, know, you have a story about an encyclopedia and a few friends that you were lucky enough to find. Today, the resources are tremendous, you know, as far Indeed. as we have available. And I like to feel as though I'm part of that resource in central Illinois. And uh, I will get to it in a few minutes. I think a lot of people would agree with that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I was uh, played with a few friends in high school. Very similar experience. Did not, there was no such thing as classic chess in Illinois except perhaps in the metropolitan Chicago area uh, in the 60s when I went to college. In the 50s, even less. So uh, the 50s were my grade school years, and uh, 60 or 58 to 62 was high school. The only chess I played in that stretch of time was with three or four friends in uh, Monticello. Came to college, and uh, I had a lot of things I wanted to do in college and did not know how to go hunting for chess. Where did Uh, you uh, attend college? Illinois State University. Here in Bloomington. Here in Normal. Uh, And I like to say that I attended three universities at the same school because we were Illinois State Normal University. When I came, when I was a freshman, they passed a law that we became Illinois State University at Normal. So that's where I went my sophomore year, same place. <laughs> and Illinois State University at Normal 
the administration was mad at what the uh, assembly had done, so we became Illinois State University. That was my good fortune because there was a guy that uh, worked at the student union, a professional, who had taken up chess the year before, my freshman year. He played in the 1963 U.S. Open in Chicago. He came back to school that year as in his job at the University Union. He formed a chess club. And I saw the advertisement. I thought, well, I'm a pretty good chess player. And being the same population, Illinois State University being the same population as I had grown up in, essentially, uh, I stood out. And, of course, when you find something that you're good at in college, you keep doing it. <laughs> you try to do it. Right. And so uh, we, but it was, it was fun for me because there were four or five of us that were pretty close to the same skill level. And so we played chess in uh, my sophomore year. And there was something called the Student Unions, Association of Student Unions or something like that that would get together uh, chess, bowling, bridge, and a couple of other things for an annual tournament in their region. And our region was Illinois, Indiana, part of Michigan, and I think we reached down in northern Kentucky for our area. So uh, my sophomore year, I went to a tournament and it was a five-round Swiss tournament, two days, which was sort of the standard practice in the 50s and 60s and 70s, two days, five rounds, and that's the way it happened. You know, today we have um, some, I, I don't know if I could call them this, but some standard time controls that people seem to like to play, you know, like 90 plus 30, 40 and 2, sudden death 1, Game 60, delay 5. Do you remember what it was back then? Was there a specific yes. format that they a good, A good tournament for amateurs was game 60. And then, uh, not, I'm sorry, not game 60, 40 and 60. Then 20 and, uh, no, I'm sorry. Let me start again. We, we'd play uh, 40 moves in a hundred minutes. Okay. 40 moves in a hundred minutes. If you did not reach 40 moves in a hundred minutes, you lost. Now there was no time delay because they hadn't invented the clocks. Right. And then, and there was no sudden death. So the second time control was often close to half that or something like 20 and 50 or 20, 20 and 50, 30 right. or something. And so there were, there were tournaments where they would adjourn a game. Actually, it's interesting. Carl Boer, who we were discussing also yes. before we started recording, he and I mentioned that, um, neither of us have, to our knowledge, have participated in a tournament where a game was adjourned. We think we were sort of right on the cutoff of, you know, our chess playing years began shortly after the adjournments. I have, I believe I've known you since close to the beginning of your tournament career. 
Sounds right. And uh, you would be right because I left chess between uh, 76 and 86, 76 to 86. I was out of chess. And they came back with these strange apparatus <laughs> that uh, changed it for me. But uh, in my first chess career from uh, 1962, 1963 to uh, 1976, all all the time controls were sudden death. Or I'm not sorry, we're not sorry. So, we're not sudden death. But but the the way that many of the games ended was sort of like sudden death. If you overstepped your time limit. You lost. If I only made 38 moves in 100 minutes and didn't make my 39th, I lose. And uh, that's an interesting way to play. But when you adjourn games, two players go off, a sealed move is submitted so that when you come back together, neither person knows the exact position. The exact position. And so uh, I, I directed a tournament uh, one time, and I'm going to say a name that's familiar to you and other players in Illinois, Bill Naff. Sure. Bill Naff could stretch a game so deeply, so very, very deeply, and would. I once had a tournament. I was one of the early people to start uh, 30 and 60s. 30 and 60 was un, you know, unbelievably fast to many people. That's just too fast to play chess. Two minutes a move. How can we, how can <laughs> we survive on two minutes? Yes. And uh, one tournament I directed, four rounds. Rounds were at uh, nine, noon, three, and six. Enough time to get a in. Bill had two adjourned games after the fourth round was done. I was there with Bill Naff until 1.30 in the morning. <laughs> I was going to ask, so do you, when you have a case of two, if there's only one, I, I assume you could maybe even try to do it the next morning. But when you have two games to finish, you have to conclude one of them that night. Well, in fact, that format was a one-day format. <laughs> so there is no coming that, back. That was one of the first formats to be a one-day format. Okay. And so, yes, you had to get them done. And Apart from Mr. Naff, how, how common were adjournments in, in, uh, in those days? Probably in in that format, 30-60. I pl- probably had uh, one, two, three, or four adjournments in a, let's see, uh, 80 game tournament. Okay. Uh, 20, 20 boards, four rounds. So they were not particularly common. They, they got done. Then uh, from that format where we were playing in, I keep calling it sudden death, but it, it was a very different kind of sudden death. <laughs> you got to make the number of moves. Uh, and the Association of Student Unions was a good format. It was non-rated, but the chess players from 
different colleges got to know each other. And so Illinois State University had its chess club. And I, I don't, there was something about me that I was the one that stepped forward and did the organizational work of the chess club. And that is, that was interesting to me. But uh, after the first association student union tournaments that I attended, then Eureka College here in Illinois, Bradley at Peoria, and Lincoln College, which is Lincoln Junior College at the time, and Illinois State University put together a league, a home-and-home six-game season, a six-match season for the league. And uh, it was interesting because once we graduated, all of us went into community chess organizing and continued as uh, Bloomington, Peoria, Springfield, Decatur, and sometimes Champaign. Champaign, uh, not many other people, not many people from central Illinois liked the Champaign Club because they always had more mass. They had more strong players. They had masters there in their school. Well, the universe, university, so um, for our listeners who aren't aware, that's the home of the University of Illinois. Yes. And that draws, even to this day, I remember a few years ago, they had an incredibly strong team, uh, what turned out to be international master Eric Rosen. Right. Um, and then a, a host of 22 to 2,400 players as well. Yes. Um, so and that hasn't changed much to this day. Right. They're still that's pretty right. good. Yeah, well, yeah. they are the... They're the major university, research university uh, in Illinois, uh, barring the Chicago area, of course. Uh, But that is where I became very interested in chess, and I just took you from uh, my very young years to graduating from college and getting out into a chess community that was a little bit different. So we did um, 15 years and five minutes. Hardly seems fair. <laughs> okay. Well, they're... Uh, it's pretty efficient, though. Yeah. Well, that's that's what got me to what we called in Bloomington Normal the Twin City Chess Club. Uh, the well-known Twin City. I crossed paths with that gentleman later in uh, in a few years in my chess career. And they were a little offended that we had the Twin City Tornadoes, Twin City Opens. Uh, when I got up there and I told him who I was, I was entering a chess tournament up in Minneapolis. He said, wait a minute. You're the guy that uses the term Twin City, aren't you? <laughs> I said, yes, I am. He said, we were a little offended when you started doing that in chess, but you've been obviously successful. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so he had some admiration for us. Uh, I came out, started teaching in 1966, and uh, teaching for, um, what teaching you, speech and language. What uh, grades were were the or was there a specific well, uh, was it over the elementary, junior high, over the course of my career, mm. preschool through high school, oh, okay. but uh, speech and language. Pathologist is usually uh, that's my new that's what I retired as uh, speech and language. We were speech correctionists. Then we became speech therapists. Found out that doctors 
like to prescribe things to therapists, and so we didn't like speech therapists. <laughs> so we became a speech and language pathologist. It's one of those things that it was sort of like my college career. Right. You was, get to be three different jobs. Three and, different things, yeah. doing the same thing all the time. <laughs> but uh, I taught in Limington Public Schools. We would be assigned a school uh, based on, uh, well, based on administration's whims. Uh, but we would get into a school and pretty much stay there for a few years. And uh, I ended up teaching in seven different schools in Bloomington. And uh, they were temporary positions, except that uh, that's sort of hard to say when uh, the longest tenure at a school that I had was from uh, 1972 to uh, 2004. So temporary with quotation marks. Yes. yes. But but when I that school, I was also carrying two other schools at the same time. And so that's what I did uh, in terms of my profession. I organized the Twin City Chess Club uh, in Bloomington Normal in February of 67, which was my first year of teaching. Uh, and it was sort of out of the blue kind of thing. I got a phone call from director of uh, Parks and Recreation in Normal. And he, I'm still not sure how it happened, but he called me and said, one of the old guys in the chess club said I would be a good head for a chess club and would I organize one in Normal? And I asked him, and so I went to him and talked with him, and I said, could I call it Twin City Chess Club, not Normal Chess Club? He said, yes, you could. I, that would be fine with me. And so it gave gave me, uh, at that time, a city population of around 85,000 to work with. And as you alluded to, there were no computers. If you played chess and you liked chess, you had to find a club to play in. There, You had no option. And so our chess club uh, got started relatively quickly, relatively strongly. We had anywhere from a dozen to 15 or 16 coming to chess club every Monday night. And then, uh, then we started, uh, I started a youth program at a couple of my schools and had McLean County championships. And one of those reached, uh, I got the word out pretty well in the last one that I did. Uh, we had just under 100 students playing in that. Uh, For Central McLean. Illinois at the time, I mean, that must have been, felt like a huge event. Oh, yeah, it was. There were no events, no other events that were that large, uh, Chessically. And and the other, the organizers in the other chess cities sort of looked at me and said, uh, come on, really? And I said, well, look at what I've got. I've got a couple of young players who have played at club and in those tournaments who've reached 1,200, 1,300. They can play at the adult club, and they are improving. 
and you know many of us over 40 don't improve <laughs> they would shrug their shoulders and say okay and so uh i created an atmosphere of nurturing the young players young players were being a school teacher i was very quick to admonish young players you are here by invitation if you don't behave like a grown-up you don't get to play here you know i remember it's very funny you just sort of dropped uh not quite a whole octave there with your voice but i remember hearing the what we called as kids the garrett scott voice uh, <laughs> You'll remember I used to travel over from Peoria to the Twin Cities to play scholastic right. events um, yes. when I was in junior high and, and maybe even elementary school. And Would that have been the late 80s? Late 80s, early 90s. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, my friends and I, you know, of course, when you, when you first enter the room, the tournaments even then were quite large. Um, not only the Martin Luther King event, which we'll get to, but even just the local school, uh, you know, hosting, yes. hosting a tournament, um, they were quite large. And it was your first time there was quite an experience. Yes. And almost all, almost always you would hear the Garrett Scott voice at some point. <laughs> yes. The, uh, you know, let's not run or whatever it may be that, that's happening. So it, it sort of became legendary among our little uh, group of chess players. And? I would submit to you that you, that gave you and your comrades a sense that don't mess with him. Yes, it absolutely <laughs> did. And so it absolutely did. Uh, I think. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I, I would just say, you know, my experience because I've, uh, as you know, uh, taught quite a lot of chess. Um, I would not say that I have a Garrett Scott voice, but I've got something similar, and I yes. think it's probably as a school teacher of multiple decades, you would agree, it's probably the single most necessary thing to possess when keeping control of a, of a classroom or ensuring that expectations are being met. Yes. And uh, yeah, that was that is part of it. And I have had very similar comments from adults after they come through the chess program. And I have had questions from people who have tried scholastic programs and can't get it to happen in an orderly way. And they say, well, what do you do? What do you say to them that gets your tournaments quiet and the people behaving like they're supposed to? And I would submit that it's about the same thing that good coaches do. Bad coaches try to make their teams better. Some coaches can, some coaches can't. And tournament directors would like to have order. And some of us can, and some of us don't. And that's, uh, that's just all across the board. And so I don't know what talent I have that makes my tournaments orderly. But they are, or they were. I have not directed a tournament in about five years. As a former attendee of your tournaments, um, I would submit to you that perhaps the question the parent should have asked was not what, but how. <laughs> yes. Instead of what do you say, it always felt to me like, you know, the the how you say it, it there's um, a level of, uh, what's the right word, um, 
Well, I, I like the word I chose before, expectation. You are expected to behave in a certain way, and this, I expect this to run orderly, and it's going to. And that's how it is. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in Bloomington Normal, in Bloomington, when I was uh, beginning the, the first few years of Twin City Chess Club, from 60, uh, 67 to uh, mid-70s, we had put together a pretty nice calendar in Bloomington Normal, and I had organized a couple of chess uh, clubs at schools. I did it differently than most organizers in those years. I didn't go to junior highs and high schools to start them. I started them in elementary school. And with without much experience, because I had learned to play chess before I was in school, I thought, well, they can play chess. And I found uh, some good chess players in schools, made tournaments for them, and uh, in my first era of chess, the tournaments got up and one of them passed 100. Uh, I dropped away from chess in the uh, early or the mid-70s. Uh, I, I had a family. And Funny how those come along from yeah. time to time. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm very happy with my family. It's 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 a delightful family. It was. It seemed like a fair trade off. Yes. Oh yeah. Well, I was uh, in that time period. I Indian guides for my son and me, and uh, coaching soccer and and doing uh, some professional things. I was active in the Illinois uh, Speech and Hearing Association. And uh, I was active in the American Dialect Society, and went uh, went. I, uh, this is going to be a sidelight that may not be of much interest. One of my uh, jobs as a speech and language pathologist was to screen every child every couple of years. First grade, fifth grade, and in our school at that time, eighth grade, before they went into high school. Screening for what in particular? Speech, speech, speech challenges. Okay. Anything right. that uh, might not have been caught by teachers earlier, uh, they had a speech pathologist listen to them in first grade, which became kindergarten later, uh, and then before they went to junior high, so the junior high teacher wouldn't have to do as they came in and as they left. But I designed uh, interviews to check dialect items. And in my interview, I got all the sounds I wanted the students to say. I got them to converse about events, and I got them to give me some story so I could know that they had language and process, processed it reasonably well. But I had a series of questions each year, and each year it changed for a number of years. And uh, I would do a dialect survey with about 500 students. And I would ask them if they were native Bloomington Normal 
people, and that that body of people were were my subjects for what does Bloomington Normal talk like? Ah, so you were establishing a control group almost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. and uh, so uh, American Dialect Society. You know how actually pretty small U.S. Chess Federation is compared to the population of the country. We're growing, but yes, compared to the population, yeah. U.S. Chess Federation is leaps and bounds larger than the, the American Dialects. <laughs> but uh, because of my inclination toward, because of my inclination regarding uh, academics and studies, I got to be a recognized professional in the American Dialect Society. And at the same time, now this this puts me uh, just past 30 when you're thinking about what is your life really going to do now. Uh, I was active in the Illinois Speech and Hearing Association also. And both of those uh, groups gave me a very professional feel. I was also doing my master's degree at the time. And then... Uh, then in, uh, I had this hiatus from 76 to 86, but I also, uh, the town of Normal is a, is a conservative town, a rather conservative town. Fairly common for Central south of Illinois. Chicago, Illinois. Oh yeah, yeah south of Chicago, Illinois right. uh, is going to be conservative. But... The town of Normal, having as its base the university, was probably more liberal than most. Well, I know it's more liberal than all the other towns in the community. Uh, and so uh, the, the Normal Town Council was uh, ran this community with some inclinations toward uh, providing for the community a bit more than the cons some conservative communities do. And I compare us to uh, Decatur, LaSalle, Peru, uh, Champaign-Urbana even, and those are, and Peoria, those are cities within 60 miles that uh, uh, we compare ourselves to. And uh, a in 1980, it came up that one of our council members, uh, university professor, said he was going to step down. Mm. Now, my wife, several years earlier, had gotten herself elected to the McLean County Board. And running a small campaign, as I did for her board seat, I thought, you know, it's really sort of easy to get elected in town this size. <laughs> and I was in And you have some experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I I uh, I was known in the community. And so I went out and campaigned for nineteen eighty election. And I won a seat, which I sat in for let's see, eighty to twenty four, twenty three. Eighty to twenty three, nineteen eighty. 2003 2023 so i or 2003 right yeah so i was uh i was on the council for more than 20 years and there are 
I did several things on council that I was very proud of. And uh, it's very, very common here to be reelected. If you once you get elected and you get known as a council member, the incumbency bump. Incumbency, yeah. Well, and that's that's what happened to me. But uh, my last election was very contested about uh, adding hotels downtown in in Normal. And, and when was that? Your most recent one that that was two thousand four, two thousand two thousand three. Okay, yeah, because uh, they they changed the election law, and you can't change a law and limit a uh, term. So they changed the law that the terms would not be on even numbered years so they wouldn't be elected at the same time presidents and governors. Oh, okay. And so we went to odd number of years, and uh, so I, I got an extra year along the line. Oh, my, my, uh, my first election? Mm-hmm. Won by fourteen votes. Wow! The I'm, two the I'm, two incumbents uh, both scored in the two thousands. I was going to ask if you remembered the the actual vote uh, counts. My I don't remember it exactly, but I knew the that uh, the four of us who were in the next group, and I was the top by fourteen votes, uh, were in the eleven hundreds. So, not even half as many as the incumbents. So every vote counts. That's right. <laughs> but uh, this is a long way of getting around uh, my other community involvement. And from 70, uh, 76 to 86, I was not in chess. But the chess club that I had formed in 67 had a large enough adult population that it maintained itself. And uh, you would probably, if if I could pull them out, I, you'd probably remember some of the names of people who ran the chess club for us. 1986, a guy named Merle Rhodes, whom you know, uh, Peoria Peoria Chess for essentially the same era that I was. I am Bloomington Normal Chess. Uh, he had formed some school clubs in the uh, middle 80s, I think, 83, 84 in there. And somehow I had crossed paths with him and said, what's going on in chess? And he told me, and uh, I was in Peoria doing something else. And he told me there was a chess tournament. So I went to a scholastic chess tournament. I think there were about 70 people there, 70 to 80 people in a Peoria tournament. And I said, what's, what's the deal here? How hard is it to do this? He said, it's not hard at all, and you'll get at least three times as many players as you do when you're organizing adult. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the vision he had, because that remains true to this day. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, I said, well, Maybe I'll start a chess club over in Bloomington. He said, oh. Scholastic chess club. Scholastic chess club. The Twin City Chess Club was still going. And I I approached my principal, and uh, I had been prompted by seeing a chess set and board in a third grade room. Classroom, a third grade classroom. Third grade classroom. Mm -hmm. 
And I said, I, I can do that. I can go back to that. Uh, my son graduated high school in 87. So he was headed out. And uh, my daughter was going to graduate in 91. And uh, if you are aware of high school girls. I'm about to have one. I'm one year away. Okay. She's going into eighth grade this year. I would suggest to you that in the next five years, she would prefer not to have you along. (laughs) So you have time to run. (laughs) That's right. So I have time. Right. Because they wanted to do their activities, and they didn't want to be in activities that mom and dad were involved with. So that's what happened. And I formed a chess club at Oakland School. And Oakland Mer- is District Oakland, 187, is that uh, correct? 87. 87, District I'm sorry. Yes. Bloomington Public Schools, Oakland School was my first club. And Merle suggested it. He said, you know, it's it's going to be a good time for you to form a chess club. And I said, well, why is that? He said, because uh, the uh, 1987 state grade school championship is coming down the state for the first time. It you came, have, um, you have East Peoria. I'm sorry to interrupt. I was going to say you have a better historical sense of scholastic chess than I do. Um, was early to mid 1980s. Is that when scholastic chess really started to become a thing? Or when did you, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, in the, in the fifties and sixties, there was none. That's right? Right. There was practically nothing. That's correct. When did, uh, when did it really start to take hold? Uh, if you have a sense of that. Uh, yes. I, Around that time. In the early eighties, high school chess was before that, but high school chess had not come to central Illinois, uh, except in a couple of, uh, isolated situations must be fascinating to think of, you know, what we have now, one of the largest high school state championships in the oh, country. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. And I'm, I was, it was interesting. It, that, that whole story I'm going to cover, and that's very <laughs> I'm leaping ahead. I apologize. I'm, uh, yeah, so I got mine started, and uh, the first state championship, every state championship from 1985 to, uh, yeah, 1985 to 1995, I think, 96, every state championship set an attendance record. So it was growing. And the one at, uh, the one in East Peoria was, um, they topped 200 for the first time. And that was 1987, correct? That was 1987. And... And East Peoria is not exactly a hub of activity for those who are unfamiliar with Central but, Illinois. But there were Merle was involved, and several other people were involved in uh, chess clubs, junior high, and then down to elementary. Right. So they there was the host club had about uh, a dozen students there, and that was K eight, right. uh, and the. We do you remember what who was the host club? What school it was? I do not. Beverly Manor. Oh, okay. Beverly Manor was the host club. Hadn't gone to that name in a long while. <laughs> it was there, but uh, I had formed the Oakland School in Bloomington. Is a good so in 1987 and continues to this day. 
a good school, and by good school, I mean has community support and middle class and upper middle class uh, parents. State Farm makes up a great deal of the parent population. And so when I started chess club, there were a lot of youngsters who wanted to play. And we sort of astonished the state championship. People would bring four or eight or 12 so they could have a four-player team in each section. I didn't realize that was tradition. So I bought all twenty. I brought all twenty-five of my students. And well, you've got six plus an alternate. Yes. six four-man teams and an alternate. Well, except they were not. <laughs> we didn't play by teams. Right. They were uh, open, open section. Square, open section Swiss. Right. K three, uh, four five and six seven eight were the three sections, and so uh, I did that. Well, the, I'm, Merle also told me, and if you do well, go on to the national championship. I said, well, that's pretty, yeah, national championships. It's in Terre Haute. Oh, which, very close by. Which yeah. is a drive for us, yeah. a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour drive. For us to get to Terre Haute. Compared to some of the locations they've been, that's yeah, they, not that bad. At that time, they'd almost all been eastern seaboard large cities. And uh, a guy interestingly named Bob Fisher uh, was Terre Haute coach. And he had organized chess in Indiana for, oh, maybe 10 years by that time. But I got to start there. Uh, our... I had no idea what kind of quality my students were playing because they'd been playing in-house. And we got second place in state. <laughs> Whoa, second place in state. Well, I was similarly as proud as the parents and the principal were. I was just quite proud of it. A couple of years later, filtering it backwards, well, you didn't have to be much to get second place in state <laughs> <laughs> because there were so few players. Right. And so, uh, and and we had been first place going into the last round. And so everyone was excited. And so as we gathered up our second place trophy and uh, my uh, fourth, fifth graders also got a trophy, I think fourth. And they were astonished. Parents were excited. We were gathering together our trophies and getting ready to go home. And I said, hey, mom and dads, next month national championship is in Terre Haute. Would you like to go? With that enthusiasm. <laughs> the, the timing. The, you the, played the timing well there. The, the yeah. moment was just beautiful for me. And that started... Uh, my whole stretch of scholastic chess uh, in the last part of this of the past century and first few years of this century. Uh, I started out with uh, the second year, I thought school holidays. That's Veterans Day, Martin Luther King Day, and uh, Washington's birthday. 
or uh, depend they would President's Day something. Yeah, well, it, it was Lincoln's birthday then, and then they combined it to President's Day sooner thereafter. And I thought, well, that would be a good preparation season for grade schoolers. And so I approached several other teachers that I thought might be interested, one of whom was a parent of one of my first kids at Oakland School, one of whom was the parent of a kid who was playing at Oakland School, but uh, sort of half-heartedly. And uh, the music teacher who played chess and saw what I did there at Oakland. He was a music teacher at Oakland and several other schools. And he said, let's take the organized chess club. And I went through it with him. He'd, he had played chess as a young person, but then decided to try USCF chess and turned out to be a 1300 player. And he organized chess at another school. So there were four Bloomington schools ready to play chess that season. Do you remember the original form? Yes. Stevenson School. Okay. Centennial School, which is now gone. It's, it, it, was, uh, it was incorporated into the new junior high building. Okay. Uh, Bent School, which has a very interesting population. It has, at the time, had railroad yard workers and West Illinois Wesleyan University faculty. So there was an interest there, and that's where uh, Mike Wallace, the band teacher, was teaching. And uh, Centennial, Stevenson, Bent, and Oakland were four. So to give a little context um, for our listeners, because uh, you, know, you mentioned, uh, and then I went off for the next quarter century and organized and... <laughs> To give a little context, you know, Bloomington Normal for as realistically as small uh, as a community as it is, you know, it's 130,000 people and a large chunk of that are Illinois State students and faculty. Yes. Wesleyan, Illinois Wesleyan students and faculty. Yes. Heartland Community College students and faculty. Has an incredibly vibrant and large scholastic chess population these days. At, at I think it's height... Um, and you would know better than I, but at, at the height of chess playing for Bloomington Normal, the average weekend tournament at a school, you know, we're not talking state championship, no. city championship. This yeah. is just a weekend. So Stevenson Saturday. School is hosting Saturday one day thing was probably around 300. Am I shortchanging it a bit? Uh, Maybe no, even higher? You're, you're boosting it a bit. I'm boosting it a bit. Yes. Okay. Those kinds of tournaments generally were... Uh, 150, 250. I remember seeing MSA charts from, you know, U.S. chess MSA yes. charts from 2010s-ish. Yes. Where they were consistently drawing between 250 and three, let's say 310. That's right. And if you, but see, that was newsworthy. Uh, the paper would cover those weekend, those tournaments with that many kids playing. Well, Unit 5, Normal, which interestingly, being the larger of or the Normal is the smaller of the two communities, but because of some strange state laws, 
unit five schools, normal, uh, have a larger population than Bloomington does. And there were. Yeah, so the larger teams typically do come from unit five schools, right? Compared they, to District they, 87. They do now. Right. Uh, at the start, District 87 dominated because. That's where the program I created were. a network yeah. of, of people willing to coach. And the. Uh, the interesting thing was that, uh, well, one good example, uh, a parent came to me and said, could my son come over and play chess at your club? I said, and where does he go to school? Glenn's school, normal. I said, I could, make, I could help you start a club and give you information that would allow you you, yes, mom, you, the possibility of instruction. She said, I just barely know how to play the game. I said, after you go through my material, you'll have a standing of good enough to coach. <laughs> good enough. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well. No, that's, that's all you need. Yes. Yeah, you that's need, what you need. You, you need, need good enough. You need parents. You prefer, I prefer teachers. Because when a parent comes in and helps with the club, everyone says, okay, you do it, you do it, you do it. The kid leaves that school. The parent leaves that school. And that's the end of the program all yes. the time. So. Yes. I, um, another reason to prefer teachers, I'm sure you've heard this too, it's a lot easier to teach a teacher chess than a chess player how to teach. And yes, I, I typically find that to be true. Yes, I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And uh, yeah, teachers are very aware of take a book, figure out what's in that book, and then transfer it to the students. And quite honestly, we talked about it at tournaments. One of the things about making a chess club work in schools is order. You have to have the chess club orderly enough that you can give instruction. And the one thing that you have to worry about with young students, with elementary school students. Attention. Well, you've, <laughs> you've got a variety of things. To worry about. <laughs> I'm, yes, I'm curious what your one thing is. I could think of a few. Yeah. But what, uh, what sorry, where were you going? That, uh, you I've lost my train of thought a little bit. I interrupted. I'm sorry. What you, oh, uh, that you need to have the students willing to learn. And going back to order, one of the things that breaks down many chess clubs, and I, I just cringe when I see it, when teammates are playing a Skittles game between rounds of the tournament. Their teammates are standing there suggesting moves. And I, I submit that's as harmful to learning to think about your game as anything. Someone else suggesting moves to you. Now, oftentimes you find a gem in there and you learn it. But more often than not, what you essentially do is take the game away from the two people who are playing it. I give him a suggestion. He wins with that suggestion, but it's really not his win. 
because, coach, someone held me. And the guy who got beat because of your suggestion, he's really upset because he wouldn't have beat me if you hadn't told him the move. And so that happens in many chess clubs. You have to set up a uh, situation where that doesn't happen in chess clubs because the better players will always help the beginners. And while it is helpful to learn some things, it's not helpful in terms of depending on your own thought process to get to the moves. And so uh, you know, they've got the first hundred games. You know, it's, it's just hit or miss with a five to nine-year-old. But once you get through those first games, you've got some rhythm to... Hit or oh, miss is, is probably a polite way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, uh, for example, uh, you, the C2 or C7 square. In beginning chess, one of the first effective tools that I, I always taught this, first effective tool is against weak players. Get your knight there. Check and take the rook. <laughs> and that's um, and there are other kinds of things uh, from the uh, opening that I mentioned earlier. Your queen is threatening a checkmate right. real quickly. And if you can get them to mess up, you win. <laughs> but Very uh, practical. Yes. But one of the things that you do as a chess coach to elementary schools is teach them how not how to stop that. And once you've taught them how to stop that, then they get past one point in a tournament. Then they start getting two points in a tournament. And uh, I I did not do much opening. I taught some principles of the openings. But pins, skewers, forks, how to promote a pawn. If you've got those in your bag, you can You'll get win some, a couple of games yeah, at a scholastic tournament. Yeah. Right. And right. so uh it is uh it's just exciting to teach uh scholastic players. And uh excuse me, I uh I did something interesting. I in 1973 when I started uh being a delegate to the um USCF Delegate, uh, what did he call it? State delegate, correct? Yeah, state right. delegate. Okay. Uh, I was invited to become part of the uh, network of Illinois chess because I was running one of the two centers downstate. And there were a couple of people up in Chicago who said, you know, if we're a state association, we should really have some of those people from downstate. And, uh, Merle, Rhodes, and I both uh, were delegates. Merle didn't particularly like it, and so he didn't do it as much as I did. I enjoyed the uh, national scene and feeling like I was voting on stuff that made a difference in chess nationally. And so uh, I, I took part in that and then became a little, uh, a little jealous particularly of my tournaments and the Greater Peoria Open, which is a spring tournament. 
I would get so upset when they would, someone up north would plan a big tournament on that weekend or one of the weekends before or after. And so I began to make my voice known. And the uh, people in Chicago said, oh, yeah, I guess we, yeah, we could do that. Because in the early era of me in chess, people traveling to Chicago to play chess was relatively frequent because there's no place else to go. Once we got stuff going here and here, Peoria and Springfield, uh, occasionally people would come from Chicago to play here. And uh, usually what we did was created a a nice big first place prize, like $150. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was back when I was making $8,000 a year. Right. Uh, but they, uh, we would get some experts and masters who would come down hoping to not find any other experts and masters. Right, right. and take the, <laughs> take take the prize. Take yeah. the money. Of course. Uh, and so, uh, but the, it depended on who was there, but there was often someone up in Chicago who said, hey, downstate people want this to happen. Don't don't mess up with it, mess with them. And uh, so we, with their cooperation, built a real statewide organization. And the state in chess is very similar to the state all across the state. Bloomington Normal is just about halfway down the state. Right. If you if you open up a map and there's a crease across the middle, it's going to be real close to Bloomington Normal. Right. Springfield is just a little little step south of that. Right. In many many things in the state of Illinois, that's the extent of the state. That's true. The bottom bottom third of the state essentially does not exist in anyone's mind who. Uh, lives north of Bloomington Normal. I think that's true. Yeah. And uh, people have often said to me, and I think probably to you too, oh, you're from southern Illinois? <laughs> yeah. No, we're no, 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 no. We're, we're from the Illinois part of Illinois. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, getting Chicago to give us some respect was part of growing chess in Illinois. Another part of it, um, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier, uh, and since you were just now mentioning some of the tournaments that you organized, brought those strong players down. Um, another big part of it, I think, was a, a tournament that is now a famous tournament that you initiated. Um, and I played in as yes. a kid. Yes, okay. Um, the... Martin Luther King Day chess tournament. And I see Garrett is now lifting up his hoodie to reveal a t-shirt from the 20th annual, um, oh, it was 30th. 30th annual. That was the one my daughters played in, yes. I think. Yes. Yeah. That was a cool experience. So I, I think I played in one of the first ever Martin Luther King Day tournaments. 88. And so, then 30 and, years later, my two daughters played in the 30th anniversary right. Martin Luther King tournament. And a week and a half from now, uh, 
the 33rd annual yeah. Martin Luther King Day tournament. This is one that that I I've, I always enjoyed playing in, coaching in, taking my kids to, um, and it's one that I know a little bit of the story behind. Okay. Well, but would like to know more. Okay, uh, my family growing up in Central Illinois was uh, currently we'd call it progressive. Uh, we were liberal. But a liberal person in McLean County or Macon County south of us or even Champaign County where University of Illinois is, those liberals aren't nearly as far to the left as, say, uh, Chicago sub some Chicago suburbs. Uh, in 1956, I had finished my sixth grade year at Danvers Grade School. Danvers is a little bitty town just outside of Norman. Uh, my dad got a job opportunity in Alabama. And Alabama was just almost beyond my imagination. I, I had no idea what to expect. I did know that my brother had gotten in some hot water uh, for writing a letter to the editor as a junior in high school that called the pantograph to task for having an article about a black girl becoming homecoming queen at the University of Iowa. And his problem was, why should you be... Why should we even point out when someone's black or white? We shouldn't point that out. They are people. In Danvers, he got some static about that letter. <laughs> and uh, that was the first time I was, I think I was in fourth grade then. That was the first time that I ever realized that black people were not treated well. And I... <laughs> Knew from knew that. Then the next summer, I this story happened. I had these uh, twin friends who spent the summer outside, just constantly outside. Uh, Bergstrom. They were Norwegian in heritage. They would get so tan that they came into Bloomington, went to the movie, and sat in the wrong space according to their skin color. And they had to explain, no, we're not Negroes. We're white kids. We just get a good tan because someone had gotten up from the seat and gone and could complain to the manager. Now, yeah, it's, it's 70 years ago or 65 years ago now. But nonetheless, I thought, why would someone care? But I also would say that I was 12 years old when I finished sixth grade. I'd never spoken to a black person, never spoken to a black person, never attended school with any black students, which you know was, as still may be the case in Danvers. This was also pre- uh, Pre-King. Right, pre-civil rights movement. Yes. Pre, was it, was it? I always mix up my cases. Um, 
Brown versus BOE, right? Pre, yeah. Pre Brown versus BOE. No, right, right, right after. around that. Right after. Okay. Yes. All right. That was fifty-four, and uh, this was fifty-six. Yes. Okay. But we were quite aware of it, mm-hmm. and uh, but being twelve years of age, I didn't quite put those things together. Right. Until and those I, are tough questions to to well uh, try to wrap your head around at that age. Until I got to Alabama. I got to Alabama and Gunnersville, Alabama, five thousand people, probably about twenty-five to thirty percent black. And the neighborhoods in South Alabama for the black people were unlike any houses I'd ever seen. They looked like they could fall over at any time. Now I'm overstating it some, but not much. And uh so it was I had I made a couple of friends in the neighborhood. Gunnersville, Alabama is very hilly. And they were up the hill a block and a half from me. And uh, I went up there to play one day. And there was a black kid playing with him. And I joined in. I had a nice time playing. And then I said, uh, I told my mom and dad that when I went uh, went home to dinner, and they said, "What was it like?" I said, "Well, just like playing with any friends." I said, "Good, that's what it's supposed to be." Now, <laughs> my father managed a grain elevator, and we were on the uh, Tennessee Valley River, uh, Tennessee River Valley, uh, and. Apparently, his employees knew where we were going to live. And we were just one block from town, from uh, the business district. But you could look out our back window and you'd look over the roofs of the businesses downtown. They were on the other side of the block. So, And not knowing how to get down there, I just chose going down the hill in front of our house turning right, heading toward the uh, business district. Where the roofs were. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that right behind me, when I had turned right, was a black neighborhood. I was walking down town, and there was this, there was a black guy, we called them Negroes, uh, a black guy standing against the wall, leaned back and looked a little sketchy to me. I I was a small kid. Uh, he looked humongous. Now, turned out to be he was about two hundred pounds, two hundred twenty pounds, and six two or so. But he was leaning there, had a cigarette in his hand, and watched me coming toward him. I sort of scooted to the outside of the sidewalk and continued to walk. And uh, As I got closer, I realized he had one hell of an ugly scar on his cheek. Just unbelievable. I had never seen a scar like that. And as I got about as far as from him as you to me right now across this kitchen table, uh, he said, You miss Scott's, uh, you massa Scott's son? 
Yes, sir, I am. And I was shaking in my boots. He said, he is just a fine man. <laughs> I went, <laughs> and uh, he was the first guy, first black guy I had spoken to. That was before I'd gone up the hill to play. And he he turned out to be just a nice guy. And all the guys down at the elevator, all the black guys, liked him because he treated them with respect. And that had not always been the case. But uh, so the next summer, I got a job delivering newspapers. This is still in, in Gunnersville, Alabama. Alabama. Okay. Gunnersville, Alabama. There was a kid who may have been two years younger than me. But you have to realize that the black people then were very, very, very careful about not doing something wrong. And uh, he would he would run from back of the house to the back of the house to the back of the house in his neighborhood when I was walking down the street delivering the newspaper. And he would yell at me, Hey, Snowball! Hey, Snowball! <laughs> that was... Uh, I I have presumed since uh, a note of deprecation from uh, black people to white people, and uh, by the end of the summer, I I yelled at him. And I said, "I would really like to know you. If you're, I I won't do you any harm if you'd like to talk with me." And he did, and so I didn't have a black friend, but I had had someone to talk to. Also in the uh, that experience, one Sunday afternoon when I was in eighth grade, uh, many of us would go to the Sunday afternoon shows. Uh, there were rumors in the theater that the blacks were going to come to town, come to school the next day, and they were talking about bringing chains to get into fights. And I was astonished. Here were these people that I knew who had seemed to be fine, you know, just, just good folks. They were going to try to beat on any Negro who tried to get into our school. That left an impression on me. I came, I moved back my at the end of my eighth grade year to Illinois and had this feeling that, you know, our country's not as good as I thought it was. You know, you get a real prejudice about your country when you're growing up in it, because for me and for most around me, life was going fine. And so Alabama exposed me to something very different. It's interesting um, in different ways. I think a lot of, uh, I think we still have that bubble today. You know, if life is going fine, things are going fine. Yes. Um, yes. To an extent, you know, the availability of media and the internet have changed that somewhat. But um, this bubble that you're describing, if I yes. can describe it as a bubble, I think it still kind of is there. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. There's, those of us who are interested in that, yes, 
it's still there. That got me back to Illinois as a 13-year-old heading into high school. And my high school was a solid white high school in Monticello, Illinois. And uh, Monticello is about 60 miles southeast of here, down near Champaign and Decatur. Uh, very, for the most part, very uneventful high school years. I found some guys to play chess with, and I've often wondered, Ed Williams and Russ Benjamin and Ron Davis and Martin Mulvane and I, we might have made a decent high school chess team. <laughs> if only you had one, right? <laughs> but there were no high school chess teams that we knew of at that time. Right. Uh, but uh, those are the names of the guys I played with. They were fairly good players. Uh, and I gauge that on being a fairly good player based on me coming into college and not having any more experience than that. Soon thereafter, going to the ACU tournaments, uh, college union tournaments, and that I was uh, Midland plus score in the ACU with no education between chess education at all. I did do something interesting. I formed a chess club at the youth center when I was in Alabama. I look back at that and think, what the? Why was I inclined to form a chess club? <laughs> because I had a couple of friends who were there and Saturday night uh, youth club, do whatever you want to, uh, table tennis, that dancing, that kind of thing. Why not chess? Why not chess? Yeah. And so I, we had about a dozen kids playing chess there at the youth club at, in uh, Gunnersville, Alabama. And then uh, after that, uh, yeah, so that, that brings me up to college in a different direction. And uh, we went back and did the same 15 years in a different five minutes. Right, right. Okay. It's fun to do that. You know, it's amazing how you can encapsulate it from a different angle, you know. And I got to the, uh, the university, fell into something called the United Campus Christian Foundation. Very liberal minister, Presbyterian minister there. And he would do spring breaks, uh, work trips, and education trips. My freshman year, because of some interest I had shown, I hadn't been very active, but some interest I had shown in a couple of activities they had, he invited me to go to Savannah, Georgia with him. What year was this? This was 1963. Okay. Uh, so in going to Savannah, Georgia, we were going to go down and help a black organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC. We were going to help the local chapter do voter registration work. In Savannah, Georgia, in Savannah, 1963. Georgia, 1963. And I knew it. Dr. King had become known then. And this was his organization. The SCLC. Yeah. Was so his okay. yeah. Hmm. And so I thought, well, this is sort of a touch with, with uh, current events 
exciting current events. Yeah, I'll give this a try. We went down south and went to the Savannah uh, place, and we all were lodged with black people. We had four people with brown skin, one of whom was from Jamaica, and another another white nine white kids. So I'm missing one because there were 14 of us. Anyway, we we got down there and we were doing voter registration, and intentionally they put us in a project and a mildly accepting city, so that we would nothing would happen to us. Well, unfortunately, without it being known to the minister Jim Prine who had gotten me down there. We had gotten a very active black kid from Illinois State University signed up. And he stirred up some trouble while we were there. But nothing that wasn't wasn't uh, dealt with in a rather easy manner. I am trying to remember the gentleman who was head of SCLC in Savannah, Georgia at the time, because he hosted us. He provided us with opportunities to do some work that kind of thing. Uh, you can look. You can probably find out his name if you can find a picture of the day Dr. King was shot because he is the one who stands in that picture at the motel pointing at where the shooter shot from. And this is the same gentleman who this, helped organize your... The Savannah. This, he, voter registration. He hosted mm. voter registration. We found out later, uh, much later, like just in the last 15 years, that that was, we were the group that tried it out two years before the summer that the South had uh, the bus rides. And so we were sort of a test test group for Northern college kids coming down South to be part of it. Uh, so that that happened spring break, April '63, and uh, it was just a nice emotional experience. And I was I was the minority in that whole social experience. And they had set it up so that we would be spending time with high school, college age kids uh, while we were down there, which was really interesting to me. Uh, In 1963, I am convinced that none of the kids in my high school class had gone to a nightclub that was all black except for the five of us who went that night and danced with with Georgian uh, African-American kids. And so that, I, uh, as a 19-year-old, if that doesn't convince you to be active in and what you can be active in, nothing will. So uh, in... uh, So this was sort of the, almost, if I can describe it as that, the leaping off point into your involvement with civil rights. Right. Hmm. And I really haven't been all that involved with civil rights except the King Day tournament. But 
on the news was this story about the march on Washington that was going to happen. My minister, and when, when was this? This was in August of 63. Same year. Same year. Okay. The four months after, five months after I had been to Alabama registering black voters. Georgia. Georgia. Right. Georgia. I'm right. sorry. Savannah, Georgia, registering black voters. And uh, my minister, local minister was young and the Presbyterians at that time were pretty liberal. And I said to him, I went in and saw him, I said, you know about this march that's going to happen in Washington with Dr. King? He said, yes. I said, do you know anyone who's going and I might get to go with him? He looked at me and said, why? I said, well, you know that I went with uh, Jim Prine down to Georgia on voter registration. He said, yes, I do. And he said, but Garrett, I'm not sure that you have the conviction is appropriate. I said, well, yeah, I do. We're just, we're just treating black people badly. We need to change that. And he said, well, let me think about it. Well, he was thinking about it, and I didn't realize it. And he called Jim Prine here in Normal and said, Garrett Scott wants to go. I can get him a ride. Do you think he it would be a good thing? And Jim Prine said, yeah. And so I got hooked up with a minister indicator, and there were two carloads of us who went from central Illinois to uh Washington, D.C., and I got to hear I have a dream. Wow. And that was August 1963. Late August. You can see it still affects me? I can, yeah. I'm. <laughs> anyway. Take your time. It's all right. Uh, it was just... And experience said to me, there is hope. We're going to make it. It'll come. <laughs> it may take a couple of years, but we'll get there. <laughs> I was so optimistic about everything that afternoon after his speech. And as soon as it was over, we piled the cars, headed back for Central Illinois. Stopped at a place in uh, Maryland, and it was a this before interstate highways. It was a uh, side of the road diner uh, for travelers, and the classic roadside diner, right? Like, kind of like you see in a movie, right? Yeah, sure. And we went in and sat down and waited and waited and waited and. Uh, Pastor Logan went up and said uh, we would like some service and was told in no uncertain terms that we were not going to get service. And so he just said, okay, people, we've got to leave. And so we stood up to leave. There were a couple of us who were ready to make it a confrontation. And he 
picked it out right away. And he said, remember, we're nonviolent. It's, uh, it's taken much more than a few years. It has. Yeah. But I was an optimistic teenager. And uh, it was interesting that I I looked at all, I hate to use the term, downtrodden per- people. But uh, we had a civil rights law come to issue in the town of Normal when uh, I was on council. The, Do you uh, remember what roughly what year this was? Uh, the first one was in the late 1980s. The uh, Human Rights Committee of our town said, we want you to bring this forward. And the city manager said, it won't pass. And the commission said, we want our people to know that it didn't pass, but that we tried. Now, we'd also, we had already become black housing was acceptable. At that time, it was gay and lesbians. And so, uh, so it's, it's the same theme, but different aspect. And so uh, we voted, and the vote was five to two against. I was one of the people who said, yes, we should have fair housing for everyone. Uh, and the mayor at that time, let me see, Harmon was mayor for two terms, so it would have been early to mid-90s. Okay. Uh, and he said, uh, the mayor voted uh, to pass it also. So it lost five to two. And the Human uh, Rights Commission of our town said, okay, we know we've got work to do. And the mayor then was just very, very conservative. And I thought, what? Where did he come from on this? How'd you, how, how did you pick up that second vote? Huh? It was the mayor who... Right, yeah, his, right. But, but you're probably wondering, how did I pick up that second yeah. vote from him? Yeah. His son, who was in college and had just come out. So, uh, but then we had an election, maybe two, and they brought it back. And the composition of the council had changed and one of the people who sat with us on the uh, against side was still there but had uh, come over and there was one person absent and it passed four to two so do you remember what year that it finally passed i'm thinking that was about three years later and i'm not sure the time frame but the i think both of us were I'm positive both votes were in the 90s. Well, the first one may have been late 80s, but uh, yeah. And so with that, uh, a whole bunch of stuff happened in my life from the 1960s to the 1980s, and chess had come big time, 
and the holidays. And so I was very happy to create a Martin Luther King Day tournament to commemorate. And we, at the tournament, uh, nearly every year I have spoken about the, uh, my, a little bit of my experience and how no one should ever look down on any other human being because that's not in keeping with what the United States is about. And so hopefully, um, in so doing, you're creating even more optimistic teenagers. Right, right. And, uh, <laughs> or to be, soon to be optimistic teenagers. We, we have to, uh, as, as I've realized, uh, when you're idealistic and young, it's got to happen now. And you stop and look at when did we first have slaves? In the United States, how long did it take us to just get rid of slavery? And so the fallouts of slavery and how it was handled had to go on from there. And from the 1680s or something like that to the 1860s, and now we've gone to the 20s, and we'll see what happens. But uh, I have uh, confidence. I am not sure of the exact quote, but in the in the long arc of things, generally we improve. So that's that's why I, I hope that that holds true, and I, I think it. I think it does, and I, I think it does. Yeah. I, yeah. Every now and then we take a few steps back, but 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 uh, generally speaking, I, I think that's so. I used my chess experiences to promote Dr. King, essentially, and the, the harmony that he hoped to create. But, uh, so that has become the centerpiece of my chess directing. It did become the centerpiece. I have turned over all chess organization to other people here in 20, by 2020. Last year, 2019, 2018, 2019, was last year, I suspect it was the last year, that I'll ever coach a chess team. I, and that was normal community? Is that no, correct? Normal, normal West. West. Normal, normal West. West. And the Illinois Chess Association gives a, uh, Illinois Chess Coaches Association gives state championships to the best finishing small school sizes in the state tournament based on their state ranking. Uh, Illinois High School Association gives away first, second, third, and fourth place trophies. And then beyond that, the little schools said, come on, let's do something for little schools. And so that's what happened. Uh, I coached at Oakland School for 80, 87-04, I think. Uh, I coached at uh, then I got a chance to move around. Washington School, I did two schools a year for a several years. Oakland and Washington were the main ones. Uh, after I retired, I sort of branched out and got into some schools otherwise and have, uh, have now coached, I'm not sure, how many now? Uh, 
But I am quite proud to say that despite my relative chest weakness, I'm a class, well, I'm hanging on to class C now because that's my floor. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, But it has been, it has been, I've had a very good life and chess has been a big part of it. And I have enjoyed it and watching young people develop. uh, I've, I have coached at Bloomington High School, Normal West High School, University High School, University High School here in Normal. That's the only place that I have won a full-on state championship high school. The high school championship is difficult to get. Yes, it is. Yeah. In Illinois. And, yeah. I, and, and becoming increasingly more so. And I have, uh, and I won one. And I'm quite pleased with that. That group that came through, I had a six-year group coming through University High School. And those groups uh, got a first, a second, a third, and a fourth over the course of six years. And I was quite proud of that. Uh, And it's been fun. Junior highs, I've coached at Bloomington Junior High and have been part of four state championships Illinois Chess Association state championships with Bloomington Junior High. As you can tell, I'm proud of that. Yes, very much so. Uh, I have also coached at uh, Kingsley Junior High and uh, Parkside Junior High. Both fairly recently, I believe. Yes, yeah, yeah, since I retired. Right. I retired in 04. And uh, for a 75-year-old man, the last 16 years is reasonably recently. Right, of course. So, so, uh, and chess has been fun. And uh, I directed, uh, I was an assistant director at uh, the 1973 U.S. Open in Chicago. Oh. And uh, one of my most interesting stories there was, uh, you can help me here. Walter Brown. Walter. Yes. No, sure. not Walt. Who's, he the grandmaster? He is a GM. Uh, Walter Brown uh, would have been playing around that time, I believe. Yes. Yeah. There was also probably Bizgeyer. Lombardi. Lombardi, yeah. Yes. Mm. Lombardi and Brown. Mm. An adjournment. <laughs> I was in charge of adjournments one morning. My roommate, Mike Zickate, and I alternated who did the adjournments. I had Brown and Lombardi to adjourn. And I had about 30 other games to start too. So out of what, 700 players, that's uh, 350 games and about 35 a night a day showed up for the adjournments from the night before. You, had, you asked about the adjournments. Yeah, I did. <laughs> you know, another question I was going to ask, and now, now it feels even more relevant. Um, Obviously, we've done away with adjournments because there's just too much you can you can use to your benefit yes. to help analyze the yes. position. What were the rules in those days? You know, were, was it pretty much open season? You can analyze with whomever, however you want, or were there restrictions? Because I imagine restrictions there, would be hard to follow. The, that's we realized that as tournaments got bigger, we just realized adjournments and how uh, how can you possibly contain. So they both knew a position 
when it was the other person's move. And that had some balance. Then they can study, and they did study overnight. But see, that was that was adjourning at uh, 11 o'clock at night. And and then you'd have to wake up early to go and finish your game. Well, it started the game at 10. So you had 11 hours to do any study you wanted to. Did uh, So the adjourned games, they would have to take place before the next round, though, right. correct? Yeah, okay. So we'd have to yeah. get them done by the time right. the pairings needed to be made. Wow. <laughs> and remember, hands-only pairing, no right. computers. <laughs> Note cards and... Uh... Yeah, cards and great wow. But... Uh, they had. Uh, How'd you like to pair a seven hundred player tournament by hand? Our our modern TDs yeah. out there listening to the show. Yes. Pair, go ahead and pair this seven hundred player right. U.S. opening by hand. Well, we we would take, we would divide them in point groups. Sure. And then each director would take a point group. But uh, Subtle or uh, Brown and Lombardi came back to the table or their adjournment was supposed to begin and I screwed it up. (laughs) What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to make the move on the board and start the absent person's clock if they're the one who are not on move? I actually don't know the rules. I've never had to deal with an adjournment. Well, I didn't have to deal with many, but when I had then 35 games to start and and Walter Brown is in my ear saying, get this started. Come on, get this started. Sure. I did it wrong. Uh, Lombardi had an acquaintance come in. Oh, and look at the move. Oh, no. That's why you don't do it that way. Yes, right. <laughs> I am supposed to open. You're supposed to open it and look at the move mm-hmm. and say, yes, that's an acceptable move. Mm-hmm. And then wait till the opponent shows up. But you start their clock nonetheless. Right? Start their clock. Right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you can guess. Walter probably wasn't happy. It exploded. Yeah. And uh, so all the tournament directors, president of USCF, USCF, USCF uh, office people, <laughs> <laughs> it, it took them three hours. To get that game started. And then he made his move. I made the move for him on the board. Lombardi responded. Uh, Brown. (laughs) Draw draw agreed. (laughs) No. No. Brown uh, responded with a move. And Lombardi sat for two hours. Didn't make a move at all. Just sat. And, of course, that's his option because he's got maybe, yeah, two, an hour, hour and a half. I can't remember what the adjournment time was, but it was a significant length of time. And his flag fell. He stood up and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brown and, and I can say they didn't particularly like each other before that. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, can I tell another story out of that tournament? Sure, of course. It was fun. Yeah. Uh, there were five playing areas. The top board's in one room, the next board's in another room, and so on down the line. Except 
when we started the tournament, we took all, because of the timing that you uh, alluded to, we took all of advanced entries and paired them. They were in the all in the same room. Right, yeah. And the next room was full. The next room, the third room of the, yeah, I think it was five. May have been just four. Third room was mine. And without being really aware of board numbers and advanced entries and so forth, I didn't wasn't really thinking about who was in my room. Right. And uh, one of the announcements was, in my room, we don't have computers. Put your USCF member card out beside your board, and the tournament director will be by to check off your name. And I... Can't, uh, can't just look them off. Can't no, just look can't them up in the database. Right. So <laughs> I, I'm going through my room, checking all of them, and uh, come to this one, and he's on move, and I write down the number of his board because I'm not sure. Uh, then I walk on down. Everyone except that one player did not have – everyone had their cards. This player did not have his card. And uh, I went by, and his opponent was on move, and I just looked at him and I said, I need to see your card. And he just sort of shrugged. And I thought, well, he knows he's supposed to have a card. And so I am I walk out back up to the desk, where the table where I'm sitting, and I, uh, I pressured him a little bit, but then didn't want to disturb his game. Yeah. Got back up to where I was sitting. Oh! <gasps> I realized that I had the players who had entered, they were the late entries. Mm -hmm. And board one of the late entries was a guy named Duncan Settles, and he was in my room. Duncan Settles was the outstanding uh, Canadian chess player of the era. Oh, wow. <laughs> So, so I had been badgering a grandmaster to see his from <laughs> from Canada who might not have even had a right. Yes. Well, he was playing. You know, obviously, then if you could get the grandmasters to play, sure, you you let them play. Yeah. And so he was offered. So you found the uh, one Canadian grandmaster that was invited. To <laughs> and so I had that experience, and that was a a fun one, and it's one that I like to tell. But uh, it was uh, tournament directors. There are a variety of kinds of tournament directors, and I'm one who, given the fact, given the information, if I made a mistake, I'll say so. Yeah, I screwed up. <laughs> and, uh, and then if someone starts to really chew my case about that kind of thing, I'd say, you're a chess player, right? Yes. And you're not a very good tournament director. And I would say, have you played all your games without a mistake? And that usually takes the wind out of their sails. Right. Because, oh. Well, there was yeah. the Garrett Scott voice again. Yeah. It's there. It's always there. <laughs> and so that was uh, that was what I did. And uh, I have counted them. 
jumping to another subject, I have of what I qualify as the the strong real state tournaments. I have uh, 12 state championships and have another half dozen or so of what I consider the minor state championships. Uhi, when I was there with uh, the good group that ran uh, the table for several years, we had a state championship class A, which back in that era, we had A and double A. Similar to how they classify the sports, you know, right. like football. Exactly. And, right, sure. And uh, we would, UHI would, generally speaking, uh, play. We won that three times. And one time, my best team, my I played uh, two teams a couple times because I had 16 or 12 players to play. And... One time, my best team got upset, and the uh, the opposing team was quite happy because they were going to win the tournament because they were seated that way. Well, my second team was also three and zero, and I had <laughs> I had thought my not so fast. I had thought both my teams might be three and zero after three rounds. Sure. But it didn't happen because my good team messed up. The team that beat my best team lost to my second best team. <laughs> so I got a state championship that it's way. It's funny how that happens in chess sometimes. Yes. You know, especially team, for whatever reason, team team events seem to have quirky, uh, quirky results. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Well, Garrett, this has been uh, really a pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed it. You can tell that... Uh, Reviewing my life and reviewing especially my chess life has been just a very pleasant experience for me, and I want to thank you for it. Well, I, I, I want to thank you for um, the willingness to share it, uh, in particular some of the, the details and stories you, you shared. Um, I hope our listeners will enjoy taking that trip with you. And I know especially to the central Illinois community, uh, you're a bit of a local legend, if you will. Yes. Um, and and I, I I think it's just great to hear some of that story and to introduce you beyond the borders of our bubble. Yes. Um, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Can we wait a minute? Sure. Absolutely. I forgot completely about chess politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're saying a minute, but I sense that this oh, way. Yes. No. no. It it could, but I will. Yes. I. Uh, I was. I have been officer in Illinois State Chess. I have been on the policy board for the United States Chess Federation. I have been chairman of the Scholastic Committee, which is an active, good functioning committee. I've been chairman of a couple of committees that are essentially in name only. They don't do much. Uh, and I have enjoyed that. I was uh, very fortunate to be elected to the uh, U.S. Chess Federation Policy Board. After I, I was the only, I was one person for one seat to get on the policy board. The next year, three people, half the policy board turned over. Sure. So there were uh, seven 
uh, were seven on there. And they turned it over, and I am one of the few people in the nation who has served on the U.S. Chess Federation Policy Board and the U.S. Chess Federation Executive Board, which they changed the name to my second year serving. <laughs> <laughs> so this is another one of those uh, Illinois State, Illinois State at Normal. Right, yes. right. All sorts of You've things. been very lucky to benefit from. <laughs> yes. I, uh, name changes. Name changes have been interesting. But uh, I just wanted to say that. And the one thing about USCF politics is not nearly as pleasant as town of normal politics <laughs> <laughs> just uh now i think watching the board now i think that's changed but when i was in my era uh, it there were things that just made you say why am i doing this kind of thing well but, uh, yeah i um i certainly uh believe it's changed as well i think yeah. i think so and um Garrett, your experience, honestly, I, I'm sitting here almost speechless thinking about how just how much you've done. And uh, um, I don't know what where to go other than for an optimistic teenager. I think it worked out pretty well. <laughs> yes, it did. I have I have had a very fortunate and good life and uh, things of, you know, I'm, I sit here at age 75 and say, yep. But the interesting thing is that I used to have all kinds of goals. Mm. And when you get older, those disappear. <laughs> and so I just, uh, just do my chess puzzles on chess.com and play some bridge with my friends, and that's about it. Well, thank you again, Garrett. It's been yes. a pleasure. Well, thank and, you uh, very much. I look forward to our, our next sit-down. Okay. Thank you for listening to The Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis. <laughs>